Got it. Okay. Marcelo Alcoholic. Thanks so much, Jeannie, and thanks so much, Eric, for asking me to come out and participate in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, it's definitely uh, not something that's lost on me. And uh, I don't know about whiz bang. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, my sobriety date is April 15th of 2009. Uh, I have a sponsor. My current sponsor is Jimmy A. out of New Jersey, and my grand sponsor is Bob B. out of St. Paul. And I heard it's important for me to know who my grand sponsor is, too. And, uh, and uh, you know, I have a home group. It's the Tiburon Monday Men's Stag. It's a men's meeting out here in Northern California in Marin County. It is a, uh, it is a group of about 150 men. We meet on Monday nights at 8 o'clock. It's, uh, you know, I'd like to think it's a three legacy group. You know, it's one of these groups where, you know, you got to get, there's always about 10 or 15 newcomers. And you got to get to the newcomer about 10 seconds after that prayer. Because if you don't get to them about 10 seconds after that prayer, you're going to have a long time to wait, you know, because guys are going to go up to them and uh, introduce themselves and try to make them feel welcome and see if they have a big book, if they even know what a big book is. And if they're sort of on the fence, they're going to give them some pamphlets and that sort of thing and see if they got a ride home. And, uh, you know, they're going to try to make them uh, feel welcome and uh, and offer them friendship and fellowship. Um, I have uh, I have sponsees, I have service commitments, and uh, you know I have ten toes in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and uh, my sponsor knows he's my sponsor. That means that I'm current with him on inventory and amends. That means that he hears spot check inventories. That he knows how self is showing up in Marcelo's life, and that has not always been the case. You know, and I've suffered from that when I've been. Uh, sort of running on my own will and telling my sponsor only a percentage of what's going on, you know, but uh, today I'm current with my sponsor. And, uh, you know, I sponsor men and Alcoholics Anonymous for me, for a guy like me, and this is just my story, you know, is uh, it was the last house on the last block for me for a really long time. And the light was always on and the door was always open. There was always somebody there to greet me, um, you know, and I'm a guy who was a chronic relapser. I'm a guy who came in and out of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time. And that's not everybody's story. That is not what makes me an alcoholic. You know, there's plenty of people in my home group, doctors, lawyers, judges, blue collar construction folk who are who have been sober since their very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, who never got a DUI, who came here with two cars in the garage and and money in the bank, you know, who are absolutely just as alcoholic as I am, you know, because they suffer from the first half of the first step, right? They suffer from the physical allergy and they suffer from the obsession of the mind. But myself, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a crash and burn drinker. So I would keep washing up on the shores uh, or the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? And um, because when I drank, I lost control. When I drank, I was that guy in the big book. I was the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I could be one of the nicest guy you know but let me get a little whiskey in me. Let me get a little beer in me. Let me get a little vodka in me. And uh, man, bad things happen to a guy like me. And uh, so I'd wash up, you know, to my home group even. And my home group was one of the first meetings I went to. And I remember them talking about like a fourth edition of the book. That's when I started coming to meetings when they were, when they were talking about having a fourth edition in the steering committees. And, uh, you know, I didn't, I wasn't ready to really admit I was alcoholic. And I didn't really know what that meant at all either, you know. Um, I knew that when I drank, some bad things happened. 
I knew that I probably drank too much. You know, I probably, you know, I knew that I should probably tone it down a little bit, you know, and uh, not get in so much trouble. But I love the effect produced by alcohol. I absolutely love the effect produced by alcohol. So at that point, you know, I'm 20, 21 years old and I'm coming to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and I think I am too young to be an alcoholic. Number one, I'm far too young to be an alcoholic and I still am not ready to cry, you know, call uncle. I'm not ready to do any of that right now. But the one thing that kept coming me back, kept me coming back to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous were the smiles on the faces. I knew there was something pure here. I knew there was something good here. You people didn't want my money. You know, you people were kind to me. You said, we're so happy to see you. Do you have a ride home? And they, and you guys told me your stories, you know, and at that point, right, people were at that, that point in my life, people were not saying, we're so happy to see you, Marcelo. People were saying, get out of here, man. We're tired of your BS. We're tired of the way you drink. We're tired of the way you talk to us. Please go get some help. Leave, you know, and the people of Alcoholics Anonymous were saying, we're so, we're so glad you're here. We're so happy to see you, you know, and uh, but I didn't know what was wrong with me. I couldn't understand it. I couldn't comprehend it. And I love the effect produced so much that I was going to try to manage it, control it, you know. So for the next maybe three, four years, you know, I tried to do that. I really tried to manage and control my drinking. If somehow, some way I could drink and it didn't even need to be like a normal person. If I could just manipulate my consequences to a point where I'm not going to jail and I'm not getting kicked out of the house and not going to the hospital, if I could do that and still drink, then I was gonna try to do that and that's what I did. And I'm a chapter three guy big time. You know, I tried so much stuff, you know, the wait until we get off work, drinking beer only, all that stuff. And you know, it just kept getting worse and it just kept getting worse and it just kept getting worse. And when I finally got to that point where I was, you know, where Bill talks about it. And since I got a little bit of time, I'll read it. And I got to this point a few years later, it's Bill on page five. And I love Bill's story and I love page five. You know, when he says, you know, then I went on a prodigious bender and the chance vanished. Then Bill wakes up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not so much take as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. And so that's me. A couple years later, I'm back in a hospital. I'm back in a treatment center because I still have a Blue Cross plan, and it's still a, and that's where a guy like me goes because I crash and burn, and I drink, and I can't stop, and I wind up in the hospital, and I wind up with no place to go. And uh, I remember at that point, I admitted I'm alcoholic. And to me, what I thought that meant is that I admitted that once Marcel puts alcohol in his body, he loses all control. Like that I knew and that I understood. And I was ready to understand, you know, and so there's a guy, there's an old timer in my home group who loves to say that the only requirement for membership is not the only requirement to stay sober if you be an alcoholic of the hopeless variety that's described in this book. And I definitely learned that the hard way. I learned that the hard way. And I'm and I remember being in this uh, being in this facility, admitting that I was alcoholic, knowing that I couldn't knowing that I couldn't safely drink. And I had a desire to drink. I had a desire not to drink anymore. I was tired of it. I was sick and tired of it. And I told myself I was never going to do it again. But then what Bill says is sort of the crux of our illness. Right. Is that shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. 
where had been my high resolve, I simply didn't know. It hadn't even it hadn't even come to mind. And my sponsor made me say made me write powerlessness, hopelessness into the margin of those pages, right? But just like Bill, renewing my resolve, I tried again. And I did that for a really long time because I didn't know what, what was wrong with me. And and what I didn't have the words for is that, you know, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't worked the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous as they're described in the big book. And I hadn't got connected to a power. I didn't have the language for that. I didn't understand that. I thought that, hey, if I just not, if I just don't drink and I go to meetings and I have an honest desire to stop, that a guy like me is going to be able to live a normal life because alcohol is the problem. So I fell into the trap that alcohol is the problem. And when Marcelo stops drinking, if I have an honest desire, I'll be able to stop. And so I banged my head in and out of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for such a long time. And I remember this and I'll get into my story. There, you know, there's an old timer named Joe Y and he's in the big meeting in the sky now. And I remember he was one of those guys who would, uh, he'd always come up to me and ask me, hey, Marcelo, why'd you drink? What happened? You know, like he was interested. He knew the answer. And I told him and I said, you know, I gave him any nut, any one of a number answers. And he says, that's not why you drink. Okay, well, I stopped going to meet. I didn't say that's not why you drink. And, that, and, and, and I'm starting to get a little bit of an annoyed. And Joe said, you drink because you're powerless over alcohol. You have lost the power of choice. A guy like you is always going to drink. You know, step one isn't I can't drink. Step one is I'm going to always drink. And I didn't understand what he was saying. And he, and he had me turn to page 45. And he had me read that little, uh, that little paragraph that talks about lack of power being my dilemma. You know, and this guy's sitting here with his time ha- opening the big book with me. And I don't, and I don't, and the receiver's off. I can't hear it. I can't hear it. This guy is telling me, Marcelo, if you follow the clear-cut directions in this book with one of these guys, you never have to drink again. And you never have to feel the way you're feeling again. But a guy like you needs to be connected to a power if you take alcohol away. And I couldn't hear it. Receiver's off. I wasn't willing to sit at the table because you can't accept a gift like this, you know? And I was sitting there in my self-pity, my woe is me. And where am I going to sleep tonight? Is my girl going to take me back? And I haven't been there for my son in so long. And oh, no. And all that other stuff. I have so much blocking me from even receiving a message that I couldn't receive it. And I went in and out for a long time, you know, and until I got to that place where I was willing to seek a spiritual experience, did I uh, finally get some help there. So into my story a little bit. So I started drinking. I was about 13, 14 years old. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I had drank once or twice before. And I remember I would go down to my father's liquor cabinet because uh, him and Frank and the boys would always uh, drink whiskey and play cards. And I poured their drinks for them every now and then. So one, one or two times uh, before the, you know, the magic of alcohol happened to me, I drank. I tried to drink and I didn't get that because I got so drunk. I got so messed up. I went right past that point. But summer of eighth grade going into ninth grade. I remember it like it was yesterday, man. We were, uh, there was a party. Um, They had, you know, they had kegs of beer and, you know, people were bringing hard liquor and they were mixing it all up and who knows what was in it. And, uh, and it was a summer night and we went up on the hill and, you know, we had a fantastic time. You know, they had 40 ounces old English and St. Ives and all that fun stuff. And, uh, you know, I remember when I was done with that first 40 and I had a, and I had some whiskey in my system, you know, everything just sort of happened. Everything just was quiet. I was in the moment. 
It felt like it gave me power. It gave me peace. And, uh, you know, I felt connected, you know, when nothing really bad happened at that time. But, you know, I wasn't thinking about what I'm going to be when I grow up. I wasn't thinking about where I'm, where am I going to go when I die, <laughs> which was, for whatever reason, a constant thought in my mind at that time. I wasn't thinking about anything. What she thought of me, about me, what they thought about me, I that all went away. And I felt absolutely connected. And I had a phenomenal time. I don't even think I threw up that night. I didn't get in a fight, which was to come later. I used to like to fight. But none of that happened, right? None of that happened. I felt okay. And I remember, man, I, I, I marked that spot. I marked that spot. And I didn't start drinking every day after that. But what happened long before I ever got physically addicted to alcohol, a couple things happened to me. I had this weird, irrational mental relationship with alcohol. I would sort of think a drink and it would start to crowd out all other thoughts, even way before I was physically addicted to alcohol, way before any of that happened. I would start to really, really crave that ease and comfort that alcohol gave me. And that's an abnormal condition. I didn't know that. Right. And so I would sort of think a drink and I would take a drink. And it didn't matter if it was that third period in high school. I would think a drink and it would start to overpower everything. And it would start to be this little conversation about why it's a good idea to take a drink. And I would take a drink, you know. And so I started having consequences uh, fairly early on for my drinking because of that. Because I drank at inopportune times. And then sometimes I like to fight when I drank, you know. And I started hanging around with the kids who, uh, you know, they had what I wanted. When they walked down the street, people walked out of the way, you know. People sort of hushed tones when they walked by, you know. They had this illusion that they commanded respect, you know, and I wanted that. I wanted that really bad. That looked very, very attractive to me. So I started hanging with these guys, and these guys drank when they wanted to drink. They drank to get drunk, and, they, you know, they wanted to be the biggest, baddest guys on the block, you know. And so I started to... Uh, I started to front like I was one of these guys. And so I started having consequences early on. And before this, what, you know, I was a good athlete. I played football. I played baseball. You know, I was a popular kid for the most part. And, uh, you know, what I wanted to do was go to college and play sports, you know, and uh, about six months of drinking, that all changed. You know, alcohol started to become more important than that. Alcohol started becoming more important than my parents' respect. Alcohol started slowly slowly becoming the most important thing in my life. And I had no idea. I didn't have the words for that. I didn't have any words for that. I started getting kicked out of school and it was everybody else's fault. People are just trying to manage and control me. People are trying to tell me what to do, you know? And, uh, you know, people started talking to me about my drinking really early on, 14, 15 years old. They started talking to me about this abnormal relationship I have with alcohol, but there was no way I could see it. I remember they even tried to say <laughs> They even tried to send me to this place called Sobriety High, I'm not, and I'm not joking. And I, and I said, no, thank you. No, thank you. And uh, so I kept drinking and doing my deal. And, uh, you know, I started going in and out of juvenile hall, in and out of group homes. And, my, you know, my folks couldn't really handle me because I just sort of did what I wanted to do. I did whatever I wanted to do. And um, I remember I was 16 years old, and I got sent to go live with my aunt and my uncle in, uh, right outside of Detroit, Michigan. And I remember at that point in my life, I told myself that, hey, you know, I'm sort of tired of this. I'm not going to do this other stuff. I'm not going to drink. I'm going to get it together. I'm going to play football. I'm going to play baseball. And, uh, 
you know, and I'm, I'm going to do it a little bit differently because I was starting to get a little bit tired of the consequences that alcohol was having in my life, that alcohol was helping me have. And, uh, and so I did that. And for about six, nine months, you know, as Bill says, the goose hung high. You know, I felt good. I was doing well. The, uh, the grades started going up. I had a really good semester. Um, I played football under the lights, started scoring touchdowns. My folks were, you know, my aunt and my uncle were telling me how proud they were of me. And uh, yeah, you know, and, uh, you know, and then one of these, one of these days after a game, a couple of guys are going out drinking. And I thought, why not? It's been a long time since I had to drink. Let's do it. And so I started drinking and nothing bad happened that day either. You know, and I didn't start drinking every day, but slowly but surely, you know, that just, that just woke it up. That just woke the beast up, you know, and then uh, I start drinking on the weekends and then I start drinking three days a week and then it starts coming in, taking over my, uh, taking over my sports and taking over my school and doing all this other stuff, man. And, uh, and what I start doing is I start stealing from my aunt and my uncle, you know, these two people who took me in as their own kid. You know, I started stealing from them because they had this big wine cellar this big wine cellar and they're not going to miss it there's like hundreds of bottles of wine in there maybe i could go down there and have a bottle maybe i can have a couple of bottles and and and, and this is just me alone all by myself at that age and i would go do that right because i have this abnormal relationship with alcohol that crowds out all other thoughts and i crave the sense and ease and comfort that comes out once by taking a few drinks and so, you know, uh, coaches start talking to me, stuff starts happening. Anyways, to speed it up, I end up getting in a fight. I, you know, I come back into California. I try to get it together. And uh, high school ends. I get off probation. And, uh, you know, I had fun from about 18 to 21. I had a lot of fun drinking. Had a lot of fun drinking. Was drinking four to six times a week, getting hammered, going into the city, playing, going to parties, and uh, working, making some money. And it was good. You know, I had a good time. And then... Uh, you know, when I was 19, 20 years old, you know, I met a gal and uh, we decided to have a kid, you know, because maybe that'll help me straighten up and fly straight and uh, get my act together and become a responsible man. Didn't happen. And, uh, you know, I started drinking and I started, you know, taking this kid through some stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm at the point where, OK, I'm going to go to junior college. I'm going to go get a degree. I'm going to do these things and I'm able to start good. But, you know, about mid-semester, it's noon, and I'm drinking a bottle of uh, a bottle of alcohol in the library, just reading a book, totally just on another level, on and I'm just going for oblivion. So I'm 21 years old, and I get to that point that I talked about a little bit in the beginning where, uh, you know, I'm drinking every day. I'm drinking around the clock, and uh, my friends are starting to get a little bit worried about me. And these are friends who drink like I drank. They drank. They got drunk. They partied. But they were able to put it down when they were supposed to put it down. They were able to put it down when they had to put it down. And I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. And um, I remember my buddy comes in my house and he sees bottles everywhere and they hadn't seen me in a long time. And he ends up calling my family and, uh, you know, they do sort of a mini intervention on me. And they say, hey, man, you can't live like this. This is not a normal way to live. We're all worried about you. You got to go get some help. And so I go to my first treatment center, you know, I go to my first treatment center. And, and like I said, I thought I was too young to be an alcoholic. You know, you know, I didn't know what that meant. Right. I, you know, I didn't want to stop drinking and I wanted the consequences of my drinking to stop, you know, and, uh, you know, I detoxed a little bit when I was there. Uh, there were some good conversations I had with folks, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to stop drinking. I didn't want to stop drinking at all. And I remember 
it was about the three-week mark while I was there. And for whatever reason, they took us into town to go do our laundry. And uh, so right next to the laundromat is a 7-Eleven. I don't know if you guys have 7-Elevens in Mississippi. I'm pretty sure you do. But they sell alcohol in 7-Elevens. <laughs> so I go in there, and I'm just going to get a smoke, right? And uh, I go, and I look, and oh, man, there's that alcohol. And I end up convincing a gal who's in her fourth treatment center, who's had her kids taken away from her, totally unmindful of her welfare. I ask her to get me a bottle and bring it back to the place. And she does. And I drink there. I drink in treatment, right? That's how, I mean, that's how I have no defense. I, Marcelo thinks a drink, he takes a drink. You know, I could be in jail. I could be in treatment. I could be, it doesn't matter. And, uh, you know, I start drinking that. And then it feels like, I got to get out of here. This place sucks. That's what it feels like. I don't understand that I've sparked that allergy. I don't understand that that light switch has turned on <laughs> and I don't have a choice anymore. I'm gone. And so I go and I drink, you know, and, and I try to manage and control it for a few years, like I said, and I'm not able to do it. I start getting DUIs. I start going in and out of jail. You know, it's really evident that Marcelo's not able to, uh, to live his life in any kind of normal way. And uh, every time I got a DUI, it was somebody else's fault. It was Rob's fault because he was a designated driver. And if he was able to drive, that I wouldn't have got that DUI. The second time, it was the cop's fault because if they weren't waiting outside the bar for guys like us and setting us up the whole thing, you know, I mean, you know the drill. And, uh, you know, my life got real small. My life got real small. And I got to the point where I really wanted to be there for that kid. And I wasn't able to. He's in the other room now. He's 24. He's a good kid. We got a good relationship. But I wasn't able to. I was not able to be there for that kid. I wasn't able to be there for him. And I really wanted to at this point. And I'm drinking against my will at this point. I'm going against all my morals and my values. And I'm not able to do it, you know. And uh, and then I, you know, I end up going back to this other place, you know, and I detox. And this time it's a lot worse. You know, I'm shaking, I'm sweating, I'm throwing up, and it's not good, you know. And uh, this time I'm paying attention. This time I get a big book. And uh, people from H&I are coming in, and I'm sitting in, and I'm listening, and I'm, and I'm identifying with them. I'm absolutely identifying with them. And, uh, you know, I took all the suggestions. I went into a little halfway house. I started going to the Alano Club out here. And, uh, you know, I even got a guy called Sponsor. I had an honest desire not to drink again. And, uh, you know, what my sponsor likes to say, and he very well may have stole this from somebody, but this is what he likes to say. He says, to the untrained eye, normal living looks like a solution to alcoholism. So I'm not drinking. Now I can manage and control my life, right? I'm not drinking. I'm going to meetings. Now I can... Now I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and go chase my dreams and go be the man that I always knew I could be, you know, and, uh, you know, and I'm uh, six months over. My kids in my life again. My mom's talking to me again. I got some respect going on. I got some muscles going. I'm hitting the gym. I'm feeling good, right? Everything's going okay, you know, and it's, uh, it's a Friday, something about Fridays, and it's a, and it's a Friday, and, uh, we go out to uh, on a. It was I was at work and we went to a lunch and we went to this little pizza joint, and a couple of my bosses ordered two tall dark IPAs. And I remember looking at those two tall dark IPAs and I was transfixed, man. I was just I was just locked into those things. And you know the book says you know what you know at, at certain times 
we are unable to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force. Maybe a week before, maybe even a day before, I would have had the normal reaction to that for an alcoholic who's in Alcoholics Anonymous who doesn't want to drink anymore. I could have said, man, that looks good. Taken a couple of deep breaths and said, I'm alcoholic. I can't have those drinks. They're not alcoholic. They can have that drink. They can have that drink and maybe they won't think about drink. Maybe they'll only have, have half that beer. Maybe they'll do that weird thing. Maybe they'll have a couple beers. Maybe they'll get tipsy, but they're not going to start, you know, just start drinking more and more. They might not think about taking a drink for another week, month, or year, right? But I didn't have that this day. I didn't have that mental defense. So what I didn't have the language for is that I hadn't had a personality change sufficient, sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. I didn't know that. I didn't have the words for that. I thought I was doing the deal, man. I'm not drinking. I'm going to meetings. I'm, uh, <clears throat> you know, I'm, uh, I'm there for my family. I'm paying my bills. I'm doing okay. And uh, nothing really had changed up in here. Nothing had changed in here. You know, I didn't really understand the mental obsession and I didn't understand the malady. I did not understand that internal unmanageability at all whatsoever. And so <clears throat> let me get some water. Hold on. So I didn't drink at that lunch. Right. I didn't drink during that lunch. But what I did do is uh it started talking to me and you know how that goes. It starts talking in a whisper and then it starts yelling and it feels like a snake is slowly wrapping itself around me and it's starting to squeeze, you know, and maybe if I'd acted earlier, if I'd called the sponsor, if I had prayed, if I had, I mean, I mean, if I had done something other than try to outthink this thing, I wouldn't have picked up a drink, but you know how this story ends, man. On my third break, I go across the, I go across to the little thrifties and I, <clears throat> And I tell myself, I'm just going to get half a pint. I'm only going to take a couple of pops and it's going to be okay. And so I get half that pint and I take a couple of, during work in the bathroom. Not normal. Not normal drinking. Anyways, so I take a couple of pops and it feels like my shoulders go down. It feels like somebody's let the air back in. Even the people I work with are like, what's going on, man? You just win the lottery? No, man, because I have the power again. I have the power that's produced by alcohol. You know, and uh, and I get connected, man. And so I, I lose my job that day. I fight my boss after work. I go on a three to five day run. I get in a blackout, and I'm off to the races. And I'm off to the races. And I didn't get sober till eight years later. And uh, you know, it got worse and it got worse. And maybe if I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and stayed sober then, and I would have been under the little story section. They stopped in time. But by the time I got here, I was in that last one, right? They lost nearly all. And, uh, you know, I had uh, I had periods of sobriety. I would have periods of sobriety in there. And I'd end up, like, going into a treatment center or going into a hospital or going into jail. And I'd have those famous alcoholic last words. I know what I need to do, right? I'll just get a sponsor. I'll just, like, you know, I knew the, I knew the game. I knew the language. But there was nothing behind it, you know? I didn't have the power. And I remember that guy, Joe, also telling me when I was coming in and out, he said, <clears throat> Marcella, you don't have a lack of information problem, my friend. You have a lack of power problem. You can memorize that book. You could I mean, you could do whatever you want, but those are just black lines, man. The real you's got to go through that work. You got to take the clear cut directions that are in that book in order to get the effect. You know, I didn't, I couldn't hear it, man. And uh, I remember in 2005, four years before I got sober, I uh, 
I got my third DUI and I'd flipped a car three times and almost died. And I thought I'd killed somebody, but I didn't. Thank God I had passed out and gone to the right instead of the left. <clears throat> and the car was on fire and I crawl out, man. And by this time I had gotten married and had a kid and had a couple of stepkids in one of my little periods of sobriety. And, um, and I was holding it together and I'd lost the car. I was losing, the, you know, I was about to lose the marriage. And I remember being in jail shaking really hard, really hard. And they had to give me medication and put me out for a little bit and I remember when I came to a couple of days later I was never going to drink again and I swore to God I was never going to drink again and my daughter visited me banging on the banging on the glass you know and uh, never going to drink again I'm going to do it different this time and all this other stuff and I get the book and I have some other stuff and I'm praying and I'm reading and I'm going to H&I and I'm never going to drink again and I get bailed out on day 10 and uh you know, something happens in that dressing room and it feels like I changed my mind. And by the time I get in the car, I say, hey, babe, it's 1.30. Liquor store closes at 2. Can you go down the street? Let's get a bottle. I've been through a lot. And that's what I was up against, man. And uh, I drank against my will for a long time. I lost everything. She left. She divorced me. There was no longer any place that would take me around here and that's a cold place to be where you're drinking and you got a drink and I, I had these little lucid intervals where I would finally want help and there was nobody anymore there was no one nobody believed me anymore I didn't have insurance card anymore I go to the hospital and they just tell me to leave and if I came in really sick and really shaky they just give me the little banana bag get some fluids a little Ativan in me and kick me out after like an hour and I'm shaking I'm going down the street and I'm begging for them to take me back but I got nowhere to go and, uh, you know, in 2009, God did for me what I couldn't do for myself, man. I had this divine intervention. <clears throat> I had these little periods of time where, uh, where I believe that the universe sets apart for alcoholics like me, where this little window opens, you know. And I didn't plan to stop drinking on April 15th, 2009, you know. But the, uh, <laughs> but the sheriffs had other ideas. And uh, so, I, <clears throat> so I go into jail, and I'm there again. And uh, this time I don't have the famous alcoholic last words. <clears throat> this time I don't have the I know what I need to do. They're not there anymore. The fight is gone. You know, I heard an old timer around here say step one is a breakdown of personal will. It is a breakdown of personal will. <clears throat> and this time I didn't have it. I didn't have it. I mean, it was broke. It was, you know, I didn't think that I was going to do this. I didn't, you know, I, I knew I was going to drink again, you know. And there's a part of a poem that Rumi says that, you know, he says there's a secret medicine given to those who hurt so bad they cannot hope. The hopers would feel slighted if they knew, you know, and then, you know, when God comes in through the cracks, man, and I'm in there and I'm broken and I got no hope and I'm shaking like a leaf. And when I finally stop, man, you know, I get a little bit of big book and I don't really want you. I'm, I'm sort of hesitant to even get it. Right. Because I feel like such a hypocrite because I always drink, you know. But I get the big book and I'm in there for three or four months <clears throat> and I needed to be in there for three or four months. That door didn't open. And thank God that door didn't open because I was like an animal. You know, like I said, four years before, right when I got released, before I even, you know, before I even got home, I was drinking. And they ended up giving me a suspended prison sentence and they sent me to a long term treatment center. <clears throat> and that treatment center, I don't believe treated my alcoholism. But what I think it did is that time in jail and that time away what it did is it gave me enough time away from a drink it gave me enough time away from a drink to sort of come back into my body and just sort of think maybe just maybe that little sliver of the second step started coming in 
that little sliver of the second step, you know, I was willing to believe in the power that pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. You know, maybe just maybe, Marcelo, these are the thoughts that came into my head. Maybe if you do exactly what this book says, maybe if you get one of them hard ass sponsors that's going to sit down and read in the truck with you for two, three hours, a couple times a week before the home group and make you get commitments and uh, be willing to maybe, maybe if you do that. A guy like you could not drink, you know. Our book says, you know, you know, we sought the same escape, you know, that spiritual experience that Roland sought, you know, after Dr. Young told him that, you know, we sought the same escape through a spiritual experience as the drowning sees life preservers. And that's what I did. And I didn't have the words for that. I didn't know that. I didn't understand that. This is all in hindsight when I really made a decision to seek this power, whatever this power that pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates is, man, I was gonna seek it, I was gonna give it a try because I had tried everything else and I had absolutely nothing left to lose. I had got to that point where there were only two alternatives. There were only two alternatives at this point. I was gonna die an alcoholic death or I was gonna be, I was gonna live on a spiritual basis. You know, and I love on page 93, you know, and working with others when it, you know, it just lays it out so simply and so beautifully when it says the main thing is that he be willing to believe in a power greater than himself and that he live by spiritual principles. And I got to that point where I was willing to do that. So I go back, <clears throat> I'm a year sober. I go back to home group, you know, and I get a guy, he's still alive today. He's not my current sponsor, but I mean, I love him to death. He got sober in 1967 and, um, <clears throat> He, I got introduced to him and he also, he also relapsed for a decade from 20 to 30, just like I did. And he had over 40 years at that time. He's got 50 plus now, but he had over 40 years at that time. And he sat down and he told me his story. And I said, if a guy like this, Bob could do it after what he just said, maybe I can do it, you know? And he started giving me suggestions and I took them like they were directions. You know, and he also said, Marcelo, you, <clears throat> you've been a taker in Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time. And if a guy like you doesn't become a giver, if you don't start serving this thing, you won't stay here. You know, you'll get so well, you'll, you'll forget you're sick. He used to love to say that. You're going to get so well, you'll forget you're sick. You know, and he would point out to Fred in the big book and he would tell me the history of Harry Brick and how Harry Brick died drunk. And he'd say, hey, he had a spiritual experience. You're going to get so well, you're going to forget you. You're going to get so well, you're going to forget yourself. And so I started to do what he said, and we started to do the work, man. And, you know, I thought I was just going to do this work. And he always warned me. He said, man, this run through the work, Marcel, these are the training wheels. This is just to get you connected to some kind of power. Hey, Alcoholics Anonymous is a way of life. It's not something that we compartmentalize where, hey, I'm going to go here for this hour, and I'll go check this box, and then I'll go do this. So he says, it's not like not for the hopeless alcoholic, maybe for the heavy drinker, maybe for the guy who's just felt the first nip, but not for the hopeless alcoholic, not for the guy like you. You know, and I remember also being being in those meetings, and it says it on page 45 when I was struggling for those for that decade when it says, uh, and this was me big time, when it says many times we talk to a new man and watch his hope rise as we discuss his alcoholic problems and explain our fellowship. I remember that being in the meetings, connecting with people, really understanding and getting at that. Hey, man, these people drink like I do and they're not drinking anymore and they seem somewhat happy. Right. But then it says, but his face falls when we speak of spiritual matters. 
especially when we mention God, we have reopened the subject, which our man thought he had neatly evaded or entirely ignored. And that's, I remember sitting there looking at the steps like they were the pool rules and not, not really understanding what the heck that had to do with drinking. What does this have to do with drinking? And, uh, you know, I finally got it. And he said, Marcel, let's get connected to this power. So I did it. You know, I did to the best of my ability, you know, you know, I did the steps to the best of my ability. And he said, Marcelo, now it's time for you to start giving back. And I started sponsoring. I didn't want to do it. I got an H&I commitment. I started going into juvenile hall because they wouldn't let me into the jails yet. And I started going into juvenile hall and I started sponsoring guys. And every time I did not want to do it, I had this fear. I'm going to do it wrong. What are they going to think about me? Oh, no, all this other stuff. But I had that first step experience driving me. I was so afraid I was going to drink again. Still, a year later, I was petrified I was going to drink again. And I was still taking these suggestions. You know, that first step was still as powerful or more powerful a year sober than it was where before, you know, hey, I'm powerless over alcohol for sure. My life's unmanageable, absolutely. But three weeks sober, I'd forget it. Not this time. Not this time. Not this time. And, uh, you know, I started doing those actions. And I remember when I was sitting in front of that guy and I was going through the big book, I wasn't thinking about myself. I started taking these actions and putting other people's other people's needs ahead of mine. And so, you know, when that happened, right, that, that treats my self-centeredness, which I come to learn is the root of my problem on page 62. Why do they wait till page 62, right? Well, Silkworth says you got to hook the drunk first, man. You can't start throwing that out there immediately. But like, you know, me, I, I uh, it started to treat that. I started to hold my head high a little bit. And I started to feel like, hey, maybe just maybe this thing's working for me. I was still sort of hesitant thinking the other she was going to drop. But I got a home group. I got committed commitments. I went to regular meetings regularly. And I started sponsoring guys. And my life just got so much better. My life started taking off, you know, and uh, and as we know, the ego rebuilds, you know, the ego rebuilds. And, um, you know, my, my son started coming back into my life, which was a hard thing. You know, he was 11 years old or 10 years old when I got sober. And, uh, you know, he remembers me drinking. He remembers those crazy nights where I throw him in the car and say, we're out of here. And I'm drunk and I'm on some other stuff. And I'm taking him to the airport. and He's petrified and all this other stuff. And his mom would leave all those times, you know, not a not a pretty drunk. And, uh, you know, he started coming back in my life. My daughter started coming back in my life. I started being able to hold a job. I started being able to go to school when I started to be able to do this stuff. I ended up getting a bachelor's degree. I started, like, life started happening to me. I was getting in relationships, and, like, that was sort of healthy and all this stuff, you know. And uh, I never stopped going to meetings and having a home group or sponsoring guys. But what I did start doing is I started staying sober on the old experience, and I didn't know what that meant. I didn't even have the words for it at the time, you know. And, uh, you know, there's a speaker who likes to say it's a it's a you know, it's a cold day when we're sitting in Alcoholics Anonymous thinking we're keeping ourselves sober. It's also a cold day when we look at the book and we look at the work and think, hey, I've done that already. I've done that already. That doesn't have anything to offer me anymore. Man, that's a scary, cold little place. And that's where I went. And that's where I got to. And Chuck C talks about it when he says after three and a half years, he had to start to consciously surrender, you know, and I had missed a lot of that. And I started to become somebody again, started to become somebody again. And you should listen to me because I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it just starts to become like this. And I'm raising two kids and all this other stuff. And, uh, 
you know, I'm starting to act out in some defects of character. I'm starting to start taking these little uh, judgments and criticisms of people. And uh, what I didn't know was I had what's called a bedside God. I love to call it a bedside God. I had a bedside God where it's, you know, I'm not drinking. I'm going to meetings. I got a home group and I'm sponsoring some guys. And um, But my relationship with this power, the main part of this entire program, this relationship with this power is just, hey, God, please keep me sober for today. Direct my thoughts, yada, yada. And then I'm just in full control of my day. And, and then I'll thank God for keeping me sober that evening. Maybe I'll go to a meeting. Maybe I won't. I'm in the meeting. I'm talking to my friends and I'm not watching the door for the newcomer. You know, and I start to just become a taker in Alcoholics Anonymous again. In that six years, I almost drank. <clears throat> and that came out of nowhere. It came out, out of absolutely left field. We were dropping my son off at college because he was real good in football. And, uh, and, you know, I had one of these arguments where, uh, you know, he told me everything about myself. And then my mom's crying in the corner and he's punching a hole in the wall. and He's yelling and all because, hey, they should be doing this. Don't you know? And I start to become that actor again. That's described on page 60 to 63. Even if my motives are good, I'm trying to wrestle satisfaction and happiness out of this world if I only manage well. I'm that guy again, you know, and uh, <clears throat> and I don't know it. And I come back and I talk to Bob and I write another inventory and I make some amends and I start sponsoring some other guys. But I still have this bedside God. I still have this God, this bedside God. You know, when I heard Jimmy talk about four, maybe if it was five years ago, I forget, was it four or five years ago, I heard him talk. And he talked about almost drinking that 13 years. And he talked about the big book always meeting you where you're at. And he talked about how the steps will always meet you where you're at. And he talked about staying sober on an old experience. And he talked about this set aside thing. And I was like, what is this guy talking about? <laughs> but he knows, he knows. Because I had that inner sort of voice. I had that inner voice whispering to me, whispering to me that there's something more. You got to do something more, Marcy. You got to do something more. And, you know, I asked him to take me through the work, man. And we went through the work. And we went through the work. And I had another revelatory experience. I had a spiritual experience as powerful as, as, as what happened in April 2009 when I got separated from this merciless obsession. You know, when I had this, this I, I started to be relieved of the bondage itself. I started to really come into the room a little bit more and understanding that this is a way of life. This is not something where I just do the steps and I'm over with it and everything's all good after that. And I'll just go to meeting. No, this is a way of life, Marcelo. And how are you connected to this power? What's your primary purpose? How are you fulfilling that primary purpose? How are you doing with that third, third step decision? And man, it was like a whole new language and it just opened up. And I said, oh man, I did not know how lost I was. I did not know how close I was to leaving this place, you know? And then we started to look at, and my inventory was serious. It was a big old inventory. It was a decade, it was a decade in sobriety where I couldn't blame it on alcohol anymore, right? So I'm really looking at those underlying defects of character that are driving my life. And then we looked at those amends and we looked at those, some of those amends that were unfinished. And we talked about making all the amends and what a process, what a freedom, what a beautiful thing. And I almost missed it, you know, and I almost missed it. And then I started sponsoring guys with a fervor that I never had, man. I started sponsoring guys like, oh my goodness, that was lit on fire. Started going into Salvation Army. We started going to the county jail. We started going into Soledad prison. We started doing all this stuff, man. And 
I just like, and that fire's been lit for over four years. You know, I never left Alcoholics Anonymous, but what I did is I lost my, you know, I lost 10 and 11. I wasn't, I wasn't looking, I, I wasn't continuing to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. I was, I was working at, like Jimmy likes to say, right off the wall. And if you read it off the wall, that means I go about my life, I handle my business. And when it gets too crazy, oh boy, I'm going to go in there. I'm picking up that pen and I'm going to write that inventory and I'll make some of those amends and whew, thank God that's over. He said, that's not step 10, dude. <laughs> that is not the spirit of step 10. Let's read this book. You don't just read it. Let's do what it says in 84. And I started to do that and I started to really watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. I really tried to pray to God to really remove these things that are blocking me. You know, and I would do those spot checks and at night I do that 11 step evening review and I would catch it and I would start to see patterns and I knew what to bring to God and I knew what to bring to my sponsor. You know what I mean? And I was able to, and the funny thing is I started to sponsor a lot of guys who had a little bit of time, you know, who were going through the same thing as me. You know, and it's just a beautiful thing. It is such Alcoholics Anonymous is is uh it is the most important thing in my life. It is on the top rung of the ladder before my job, before my kids. Some say, hey, you know, I'll, you know, other than my kids being born, no, ahead of my kids being born, ahead of that, absolutely everything is Alcoholics Anonymous for me right now. Because without that, I don't have anything else. I don't have that, you know. And um, you know, I'll end with this. I was uh. You know, out here we have this uh, little pilot program that H&I is doing where we get to sponsor guys in San Quentin. You know, we actually get to go in there and sit down with them for three hours a week and sponsor them one-to-one. -one. And hopefully it goes across the country and we get to do that. And I remember I was taking that long walk and I was visiting this guy who's been locked up since 1998 as a direct result of his drinking. And this other guy sitting next to him has been locked up since 2003 for uh, a, a DUI fatality. And, you know, and we're sitting there and we're reading the book and we're going through the work and, uh, you know, and then we sit down and just have this meeting. We're just four alcoholics. Though They are me. That is me. One hundred percent. That is me. And we're all sitting there and we're talking about a spiritual solution and they're describing their surrender inside there, you know, because you could drink in there. And they're talking about their surrender in there and being connected to a power and this design for living that works inside or outside and i remember i walked out there's this long walk in san quentin where you got to walk and the, and the, you know the bridge is right there and the sun's coming down and i just take a deep breath and oh my god how free do you want to be and i'm and i might have missed it you know i really might have missed it so anyways i think that's my time thanks so much for having me and it's good to be here with y'all and one day i'll come on down to mississippi i hear it's nice come on marcella that was fantastic. Man, I got so much out of that. Thanks for the journey. I liked it. So, really appreciate your service tonight. Okay, um, Eric's going to put up a vision for you on the screen. And can I have a volunteer to read that? Okay, I will. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right. 
and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Oh man, what a great, great message. I love that. Really, really thank you, Marcelo. And uh, we'll close now with the Lord's Prayer. 